If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue to worship Jesus through Psalm 32. Uh, so I'll give you a few moments to uh, get there. In case you're visiting with us, uh, we're, we've been taking a break the last several summers to spend uh, some time in the summer in the Psalms. And so our hope and desire is that we would learn to sing the songs that Jesus sang. Psalm 32, a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we bless you, we love you, and we thank you that you are a God who saves sinners, of whom we are foremost. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are a God who seals sinners until the day of Christ Jesus. And we thank you, triune God, that you who have started a good work in us will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, that you will present us mature, holy, and blameless. You will sanctify us, and one of the means that you do this is through truth. Your word is truth. And so, Father, our prayer is that you would use the truth of your word to sanctify us more, that we would look more and more like those whom you have rescued and called from darkness into light. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I want you to think about an idea with me, uh, and the idea is that worship is indeed protest. That when we gather here on the Lord's Day every Sunday, a revolt is happening. The world says that you can't put black and white or Asian in the same room, and we do it. We protest what the world says. The world says that you can't put rich and poor in the same room and rally us around a same cause, and we do it every week when we gather. And the world has their billboards, top 10 songs that are grossing millions, and it's gaining the popularity of the world, but we don't sing those songs. We sing old hymns that your grandmama and them knew. We sing new hymns that young creatives are writing. It's protest. And every Sunday when we put money in the collection plate, 
or you give online, it's protest. We're saying that this is not the only kingdom. The kingdom of this world is coming to an end, but the kingdom of our Christ will live and endure forever. It's protest. And every time we pray, we don't see God, but we see him by faith. And we believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. It's protest. And we also protest when we submit to God's word. We come to it as though we're not wise, that we lack understanding. And we protest when we read it. We're believing that God is wise, that God is good, and that God speaks to his people. It's protest. And we protest when we confess our sins at the beginning of every worship service. And in my mind, it's more terrifying than standing before you. What's harder is standing before a righteous and holy God and remembering all the ways that I have transgressed his law. And the pride in me wants to not go there. The pride in me wants to believe that when I walk through the door that I'm of a different stature of human. The pride in me wants to not open my mouth and lay myself before a righteous and holy God as one justly deserving his condemnation, but we don't do that. We agree with him, and we go down that treacherous path of thinking about all the ways that we have transgressed your laws, not just this morning, but this week. Lord, I've coveted. Lord, I've had other idols. Lord, I have formed idols out of things made. Lord, I have stolen. Lord, I have not thought about the poor. Lord, I have been angry and have murdered my brother or sister in my heart. Lord, I have used my tongue to utter things that should make me tremble. And so sometimes when you see your pastor up here crying before worship, it's not because something's wrong. It's because something's right. We're getting a glimpse into the beauty and majesty of the Lord. And the world would tell you, don't bring that in here. The world would tell you, you're okay. The world would tell you, put your best resume forward to be accepted by God. And Jesus says, no, nah, homeboy. This kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and it works differently. It's protest. I hope you, like me, we come here every Sunday aware of our sin, aware of our failure, aware of the ways that we fall short. Should we have that posture is the question that I want to put before you. Should we have that posture when you come into the house of the Lord? And my answer is most certainly so. Now, why? Because you see it in our text that the first thing David accounts for in our passage is the reality of his sin. That did you catch how it begins? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
that the assumption here in Psalm 32 is that we are transgressors, that we do have iniquity in us and upon us that we have committed, that we have committed sin. The assumption here is that we are indeed sinners. Now, here's what's, what's beautiful about Psalm 32 as it relates to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by streams of water, and he will always bear fruit. If you read Psalm 1, you get the image that, man, it is possible. It's really possible to meditate and think and treasure and memorize God's Word, and then I'm going to keep it perfectly, and I'm going to be like a tree planted by streams of water, and everything I do, I will prosper. You can read Psalm 1 through the lens that you might actually be able to live up wholly and completely to the standards of the Lord. And you know what Psalm 32 does? It says, boy, get out of here, right? (laughs) Notice the assumption. Transgression is there. Sin is there. Iniquity is there. In other words, Psalm 32 says... Maybe Psalm 1 isn't really about you in the way that you think it's about you. We'll get to that later. But here's what I think David does in our passage. I don't know about you, but I tend to think about sin really generically. And here's what David does. David says, if you are having a hard time seeing the nature of your sin, let me give you three different words. Notice he uses transgression which is a different word from sin, and it's a completely different Hebrew word from iniquity. And so David, in my mind, is adding texture and color to what we oftentimes generalize and flatten when it comes to offending a righteous and holy God. And so uh, how many of you are familiar with the Bible Project? All right, I see about a third of you. We use it in our home, and it's free. It's on YouTube. Well, YouTube, you can go to their website, and they have tons of videos that just talk about big themes in the Bible. I mean, guilt and the temple, and they summarize the structure of, every, of books in the Bible. And man, it is one of, it's been one of the sweetest tools that we've used as a family. And so they have a, ser- a mini-series, and the name of the series is Bad Words. So Google Bible Project and bad words. And, and in that series, you're going to get three different words. And you know the three different words that they use in that series? It's the three words we see in our psalm this morning. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. And so what they write or what they talk about in their, uh, in their video is that these three things, they aren't necessarily the same. They're the same under a heading of how we might offend God, but, but sin, if you purely look at the etymology of, of the term and look at how it, it, it's sister and brother words are used in other settings, I think we walk away with a fuller picture of what it means to offend God. And so the first thing is kata, which is the word for sin in our Bibles. It carries with it the idea of missing the mark. And one example they use is in Judges chapter 20, verse 16. It says, Among these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, every one of them 
could sling a stone at a single human hair and not miss. And so the not missing part is the cousin to the word sin. And so get the image that you got 700 cats and they can sling a slingshot and you put a piece of hair out there and they cannot miss the mark. Well, what David uses in this idea, right, to talk about missing the mark, that's the essence of sin. It's God has a target, and this target is his word, his law, his character. And we're humans over here trying to sling, and our, our rocks aren't even hitting the target. They're not even hitting the bullseye. They're, they're, not, they're, they're so far in another stratosphere because we're missing the mark, right? We're inaccurate morally and ethically. And not only do we miss the mark, if you look at Genesis chapter 4, the first time the word sin is used, it's actually used, and it's a beast-like creature. You know, what did God say to Cain? He says, sin is crouching at the door, right? It's this image of an animal is crouching. And so not only do we miss the mark, but there's this power, this force that's behind it that's causing us to miss it. It's our indwelling sin that makes us mark missers when it comes to the standard of God. But they also go on to talk about transgression, and it's from the word pesha or pesha, and it means to violate trust or break to break covenant relationship. Now, one example they use in the video is the way that pesha and stealing are used in the Bible. So let's say I went out of town and a stranger broke into my house. He has committed theft. He has taken. He has committed a robbery. That's one word. But let's say I went out of town and my best friend came in and stole something. The Hebrews would not use the normal word for stealing. They would use pesha or pesha. Why? Because a betrayal has happened. You didn't just take what wasn't yours. You took what wasn't yours from someone you were in some type of covenant relationship with. You get that? It's, it, it's, it's, a, a, it's a nuance, right? And so it makes sense in Genesis when Laban tracks Jacob down, when, when something has gone missing out of Laban's house, he comes to and he tries to find them and Jacob asks him, what is my Pesha? Or, or how have I broken trust with you? I've done everything you've wanted me to do, and now you're accusing me of taking something from you. And here's the irony of the passage in Genesis. Someone did break trust. It was Jacob's wife, Laban's daughter. You get it? It's not just stealing. Transgression has this idea of breaking covenant. We're supposed to be relating harmoniously in this relationship and you are not keeping up with your end of the bargain. And then the word iniquity, it's, it's the word avon, which is related to the Hebrew word avah. And avah means to be bent or crooked. And it's used in Psalm 38, 6. An old man's back is bent. Lamentations chapter 3, a road that is crooked is avah. And it carries with it this image. And you see it all in Scripture where someone's uh, avon will be visited back upon them. And so it's this idea that something is supposed to be straight and it's crooked. And in our crookedness, the consequences of our crookedness come back upon us. And so God uses this to talk about Babylon. 
You've been crooked and you just wait. Your crookedness will come back to haunt you. Now, haven't we seen all of these play out in one scene in the Bible? Think about when David sinned with Bathsheba. Was it not a crookedness? Was not he a soldier supposed to be straight out there on the battlefield? And yet he was at home and he didn't just commit adultery. Was not Uriah his friend? Was he not married? And so it was more than adultery. It was a breaking of trust. David, you're supposed to be my friend, right? And did not he miss the mark? You laid with another man's wife? And did not his crookedness come back upon him when they gave birth to a child that did not live? You see the texture that that David is adding to us. And here's what the Bible is saying. We are a room full of missing the mark people. By commission or omission, none of us keeps his word perfectly. And we're covenant breakers. We break covenant with our employers when we don't work when they think we're supposed to be working. We break covenant with our spouses when we desire someone who's not our spouse. We break covenant with our children when they look to us to lead and protect and guide and shepherd and we're too tired to engage them. We're breaking covenant. The church is full of people who offend a righteous and holy God. Pick your way, says David. There's one place where there is no transgression, where there is no iniquity, where there is no sin. And if you're listening to my voice this morning, you're not there. You're still here. And so the reason we talk about sin is because David would acknowledge we're sinners. Now, the second thing we see in our passage is David holds out the possibility of God doing something with our sin. Now, I'm saying it's a possibility because we are not universalists. We do not believe that every sinner will get their sins pardoned. We believe that God gives free and abundant grace, that the possibility is real, but we also believe in a real hell where people go. And we believe that people are really going to be there because they will not let God do what God wants to do with their sin. And so notice in the passage that your pastor can do nothing with your sin A priest can do nothing with your sin. A spouse can do nothing with your sin. Your parents can do nothing with your sin. Notice what David says, blessed is the one in whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In other words, sin is committed against the Lord. And if something is going to happen to our sin, the Lord himself is going to have to do it. And here's what David holds out in the same way that he uses three different words To describe the offense, sin, transgression, and iniquity, 
Did you notice he gives us three different words that describe what God can do with it? Did you catch that? He doesn't use the same word. He says transgression can be forgiven. Sin can be covered. Iniquity cannot be counted against you. Now notice the three words for the ways that we offend. And then David says, let me give you colorful language for the three things God can do with the three things that you do over here to offend him. Y'all tracking with me? It's beautiful poetry when you look at what David is doing here. So the first thing we see what God can do is the word forgive. What can God do with our transgression? He can forgive it. The image behind forgiveness has to do with raising something up and carrying something away. This is weight-lifting and weight-bearing language. We see this in several places in the Bible, but one is in Genesis 44. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because they're starving, and they don't know it's him, but he tells his servants to fill their bags up with as much food, as much as they can carry away with them. And it's the, it's the cousin word to our word forgive that David, that, that, that's used in Genesis, Right? And so here's what David is saying. David says transgression is a crushing weight that will come back on our heads, but God and God alone is strong enough and able to lift up the burden, to lift up that thing that we can't carry and to haul it off. Do not flatten forgiveness. It is a God lifting something up who is strong and mighty and carrying it away. But notice what else he says. That the Lord can also cover sin. And now he takes us from maybe a weight room to a seamstress. That this idea of covering, it means to cover up, to hide, or to conceal. It's used to describe the locusts that covered all of Egypt like a blanket during the plagues. It's used to describe garments that people would wear. It's used to describe when, when you made the tabernacle and you covered the wood with gold and precious stones. It was a covering that took something that was wood and earthy and you put something on top of it so that it was illustrious and beautiful. That's the image there. And what David is saying, our sin is ugly. And God can overlay it with gold. Cover it. So that when he sees you, he, do not, he does not see what's under there. He sees what he's covered it with. And then you, he takes us to an accounting office. He says, blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The image there from counting has to do with, uh, with, with banking and precision. It's the, the, the idea behind the passage in Leviticus when a man became, uh, when a man was poor and had to sell his property and his, the, the, the redeemer of the family could come and buy it back. But then if the man became profitable, then he could go back and buy his property back. But he had to calculate or count 
the years since he sold it and pay back the balance? In other words, it's accounting. You can't just go offer somebody anything. No, you have to take into account what you sold, the square, the square acreage. You got to take into account how long he's had it. In other words, it has to be a precise measurement. And what David is saying is that when God does his math, and he sees all of our guilt and iniquity, the ways that we've transgressed, that God is able to not count what's in our account to us, but he's able to somehow charge it off. Now, in my opinion, forgiveness is one of the highest blessings and causes of joy for the Christian. Why? You can't see it in your English Bibles, but the word blessed in Psalm 32 is plural. What does that mean? It means blessed upon blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Multiple manifold blessings to the one whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In other words, I don't know about you, but when I think about being blessed by God, I have something in me that instantly switches over into the material realm, right? Lord, if, if bless me with a job, right? Bless me with a spouse, right? Bless me with a child. Bless me with things. And what the psalmist is actually saying is one of the highest blessings of God is to forgive you of your sin. He wants to clothe you in something better than Prada, better than Gucci, better than Polo, better than Jordan, better than whatever brand that we think we're blessed because we can wear it. God says, I got something I want to cover you in that's better than all of that. We pray to God, Lord, I thank you for giving me strength to wake up in the morning. And God is saying, brother or sister, that ain't the only strength I got. I got the strength to take something up off of you that will crush you in hell forever, and it is your sin. I'm strong that kind of way. And I know we want God to help us with our credit, so let me get this credit straight. Let me get these, this math right. Let me get this. And God says, no, I got a credit that I want to put in your account that Sally made them ain't reporting on. You get the image? Can you name one good thing that you have that you don't have because you're forgiven? You don't get eternity in heaven with Jesus unless you're forgiven. You don't get the Holy Spirit poured out in your heart unless you're forgiven. You don't get the hope of the new heavens and the new earth unless you're forgiven. You don't have access to the Father as a son or daughter unless you are forgiven. And so it seems to me that if you move forgiveness from the lot of the Christian, though we have everything, we actually have nothing. And it's possible to have nothing in this life and to have forgiveness. And guess what? The Bible says you got everything, dog, everything imaginable. Because you are right with the righteous and holy God. And this is why David says this is one of the highest blessings for any person. It's to have your sins blotted out. Remember no more. Pardoned forever. 
Do you think about being blessed in that way? Because that's what this psalm is doing. It's pushing us to redefine what it means to be blessed. The last thing I think David shows us is the high cost of our pardon. That if you look at this passage, judgment is here. Notice what David says. He, he, he says it as if there's a ticking tock in, in the background that's going tick, 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 tick. And then one day, time is up. You see what he says in verse 6? Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. You hear what David is saying? Do not think that time is on your side. There is coming a day when time expires. And if you try to cry out on that day, it's too late. And haven't we seen this with Noah and the flood? Noah is a herald of righteousness. He's a preacher and he preaches and builds this ark year after year after year after year. And Jesus says people were marrying and giving in marriage and going all across until the day, right? When the Lord himself pushed Noah and his family in and the Lord himself shut the door and then destruction came. And you know what? It was too late. And God did something way worse than Thanos. Some of y'all got it. If you watch Infinity War, Thanos, the God of death, wipes away half of humanity, including half of the Avengers. And he did it because he was capricious. I mean, he just did it because. And here's what God did. The earth is vile. I'm not going to wipe off half of them. Everything living is gone. And we're going to start over. And it's going to be one family unit. And they found grace. It wasn't like Noah was perfect. He wasn't perfect. Just keep reading, right? But time expired. It expired. Can you imagine that scene and sight and sound? To watch him building year after year after year. And then when the waves started coming and crashing, you're clawing to get in and you can't. That's the reason David and, 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 the, and the water became associated with judgment. And that's why you see in verse 6, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me, you preserve me from trouble, right? And so the trouble in this psalm, the trouble isn't Absalom. The trouble isn't the wicked. The trouble in this psalm is the judgment of God. And so, so David is aware that this is a real thing that will happen. And here's the good news. We believe that someone paid the price. Don't we believe that, Redeemer? We believe that the rush of great waters of God's judgment, that we were held high on a rock, we found refuge and shelter because the waves of God's judgment came crashing down on his son. And we believe that Jesus 
was carrying something far heavier than a wooden cross on the way to Calvary. He was carrying your sins, all of them. And we believe that Jesus was indeed righteous. No sin, commission, omission, thought, or deed. He was perfect in every way. And he looked at your account and my account. And he says, Father, I want to be punished for their iniquity. Pour my, your wrath on me. Give them my righteousness that you might truly not count their sins against them and cover them. Cover them in the shelter of the Almighty. Let me take the wrath if you will free them. You see, David says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And do you know why we're surrounded with God saying, you're delivered, you're delivered, you're delivered? It's because his son was surrounded by crowds of people who said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The reason we get the shouts of deliverance in Psalm 32 is because Jesus did it. And in Isaiah 53, you see all of these themes coming to a head in one chapter of the Bible. Isaiah writing hundreds of years before Jesus. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and he carried away our sorrow. You get the carriedness there? He was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was wounded that we might be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us in our own ways. And God has laid our sin and iniquity upon him. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, who is the person in Psalm 1? It's Jesus who knows the word, who hides it in his heart. It's by his knowledge and obedience of the word that the many who don't do it and don't keep it are counted righteous in the courtroom of God. Do not make the mistake to think that your pardon is cheap. It's not cheap. It's blood bought with the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and humbled himself and made himself like us and lived up and into all that God desired of us. And then God himself bore God's wrath that God might be worshiped and praised forever. And that's free, says Paul, Romans 4. You can't work for it. It's a free gift. He will count you righteous through faith in Jesus. And what David does in our passage 
is reminds us that Jesus isn't the only one that pays a price for forgiveness. Now, I'm not being a heretic here, but what if I told you that being forgiven will cost you something? Give me an example. Every spring break, we used to take students on a mission trip when we were at Jackson State. And one of our favorite places to go was Huntsville, Alabama. Not only because I met my wife there and went to school there, but because there's a sister church that does really great work in the community. And so we went, and we went and we served with Lincoln uh, Village Ministries and the Village Church, and we served there for a week. And one of the things that grabbed our attention was uh, the way that they are, are taking care of the elderly in their community. And so we went up, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the senior citizens from the community would come to the church. And so we got to be there. And a, a big truck with, with squash and zucchini and greens and sweet potatoes shows up every Tuesday and Thursday. And it's a partnership between a local grocery store owned by a, a Christian businessman, Alabama A&M and their food science department. They've, they've carved out some land where they can actually grow produce. And then the neighborhood is a half a mile away. And so they've identified this area. So we got the privilege of, of unloading the truck, of bagging all and sorting it and then bagging it so that the elderly people had enough vegetables to get them for the next two to three days. And they came back on Thursday and they got enough to get them through the weekend. And the highlight of the trip was when you saw them coming in a wheelchair. Some of them came on a walker. Some of them were driven and their son stayed outside with the car running while his elderly mom came in. But we, we sat in a circle and we sang a few old hymns. We didn't play music. There was a, a five minute devotion. And then each person had a chance to share. And so we had about 50 students there and a lady named Miss Edna got up and she said, I have a word for these students. And so everybody listened to Miss Edna. And here's what Miss Edna said. She says, babies, don't y'all never be too prideful to take what God given away. I got friends. I've been trying to come up here and get these free, uh, this, these free groceries and some free prayer, but they too prideful. They at home and they don't have no vegetables. She said vegetables, right? <laughs> and she said, I don't want y'all to ever be too prideful to take what God given. All I got to do is get out here, baby, and just open my hands and come to this church and they take care of me. You hear what Miss Edna is saying? I'm not paying for the groceries, but it's going to cost me some pride. I got to humble myself and walk into this church as a needy person. That's what David is doing in the song. Did you notice the struggle in the song is a struggle with pride? I would not confess my sins. I did not acknowledge them, and your hand was heavy, heavy upon me, and it was my, my strength was dried up like the summer in Mississippi in July, right? That's not in the song, but I'm making it there. <laughs> but notice what he says, but when I confess my sins, you forgave me. 
In other words, what's the cost? Our salvation costs Jesus his life. But ain't nobody getting forgiven if you come into God pridefully. Forgiving people are those who are confessing people. I agree with you. I'm wrong, and I need your grace. And I love what John Stott in his little book, Confess Your Sins. I'm going to read it and close with this. Listen to what Stott says. Confession of sin is the opposite of pride. Confession of sin is required of every Christian. It is a question of honesty or hypocrisy. The uncovering of our sins is painful and humiliating. It brings us to our lowliness before God. We cannot bear the humiliation of seeing and facing ourselves as we really are. We are in love with the fantasy image of ourselves, which we have created, and we refuse to escape from our dreamland. We are like our first parents, Adam and Eve, who attempted to cover their nakedness and hide, but we can't. We mustn't. If we cover our sins in this life, they will be uncovered in the next. The Bible tells us of the day of judgment will be an occasion of acute embarrassment for all who have covered their sin. And so Jesus says on that day, all that has been concealed will be disclosed. Everything hidden will be made known. We must become those who confess our sins, not because we are informing God of something which he is ignorant but rather to acknowledge what he already knows about us. And yet he loves you. He knows and he invites us to not cover, but to confess that we might find pardon. And we don't do that just when we come to Jesus for salvation. This is how we rehearse and believe the gospel daily. Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. And Paul says, Lord, I'm still foremost. And that doesn't change the fact that this is who you came for. My heart and our desire is that we would be shaped by this song that we would not be concealers of our sin. We would let God do the concealing, that we would not be coverers of our sin. We would let God do the covering. And this is yours in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you, we love you, we worship you, and we confess, Father, that we are not holy. We are not righteous and our own merits and strength, we take great comfort that you came to the earth not for the righteous, not for the healthy, but for the sick. Father, may we see our sickness, and may we see the beauty of our Savior who covers and cures it. Amen.